This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Tunisia is known for sparking what many in the West call the Arab Spring, the revolutionary protests that swept across North Africa and the Middle East starting in 2010. My guest today is Tavis Jules. Together with Teresa Barton, he co-authored a new book entitled Educational Transitions in Post-Revolutionary Spaces, Islam, Security, and Social Movements in Tunisia. In the book, he argues that the Tunisian revolution had everything to do with education. Everybody wanted to achieve middle-classness, and education was the only way to become part of the middle-class elite. In our conversation, we discussed the history leading up to the 2010 protests, which would peacefully topple the president, as well as the fallout seven years later. The gap that Ben Ali left, the Islamic State, just sort of swoop in and, and filled that. Tavis Jules is an associate professor of curricular and educational policy studies at Loyola University, Chicago. Tavis Jules, welcome back to Fresh Ed. Thank you. Great, great to be back again, Will. So the Arab Spring was a series of revolutionary protests that spread throughout North Africa and the Middle East uh, in 2010 and onwards. Can you tell me how they start? Can you remind listeners how they started? Of course, that, that's, 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 a, that's an excellent question to begin with. First and foremost, one of the misnomers that we have in the West is we, we've labeled the ongoing uprising across the North Africa and Middle Eastern region. Uh, in fact, um, many Tunisians don't think of the so-called Arab Spring, which is a very Western label, as a, as a sort of spring of revolution. Um, many across the region just sort of felt that the time had come for some sort of uprising to happen. Um, and I think many of the influential factors had to do with they were very much sort of tired uh, with Western influence across the region. Western influence looked very different in very different countries. And so... In Tunisia, and this is one of the arguments that the book makes, is that in Tunisia, uh, it has had this really interesting social contract with despots, dictators, bays, um, and kings, where it would so ultimately allow them to govern um, over extended periods of time once they sort of protect their, their social freedoms, um, they provided a decent livelihood, and more importantly, they provide access to education. And in and I'll explain this a little uh, more in detail as we go along. Um, but ultimately what happened in 2010, um, it was sort of the law last straw that broke the camel's back in the Tunisian context because before 2010, uh, Tunisians were sort of rising up against the so-called benevolent dictator um, Ben Ali. But what makes 2010 different and ultimately what led to the spreading of it across the Middle East and North Africa um, was, I think, the the aid of social media. And many people have sort of have written about the aid of social media in the revolution. And what I ultimately try to do 
um, across the, the book with my co-author is that we sort of look at how in 2000, when Ben Ali first introduced social media into education, it was introduced as a tool towards engendering economic development and growth um, because of the high unemployment rate that existed in the country at that time. Ultimately, by 2010, social media would then backfire against the Ben Ali regime and it would sort of create a leaderless revolution that would sweep across uh, North Africa and the Middle East. And so many Tunisians actually argue that the so-called revolution, and, and Tunisians refer to it as an uprising or al-Thawa in, in Arabic, they talk about the Tunisian uprising as actually starting in 2008 in, in the Gafsa region within Tunisia. And ultimately that that revolution was unsuccessful because it was quenched by the, the ruling elites at that point in time, but it was also not sanctioned by the ruling elites at that point in time. But by 2010, with the self-emulation um, of Mohamed Bouzizi, what ultimately happened is that as the protests were moving immensely from the interior region along the elite coastal region, ultimately into Tunis, at that point in time, the, the the elite sort of stepped back and allowed the educated masses to sort of take their concerns directly to the leader. The uprising was one that was led by a sort of a, a, a middle class educated elite, but it was also sanctioned by the elites. And before Bouzizi's self-emulation in 2010, there had been numerous self-emulations that had occurred across that year. So you had this the sum of self-emulations in Tunisia, but no one in the Western world sort of paid attention and sort of was even interested in what was going on. Um, and so Tunisians argue this was sort of coming. The rest of the world sort of took it as, well, you know, this was a unique starting point. So let me ask a little bit about this um, this self-immolation. You, I mean, there's a, there was a series of them before Mohammed uh, Bouzizi. But can you tell me a little about Mohammed Bouzizi? Who was he, and how did he get to the point of self-immolation? Sure. Um, so Bouzizi was just an ordinary vendor. Um, living in the interland regions uh, of, of Tunisia. Um, it's interesting because he was not well-educated per se, but he, like many Tunisians, he sort of ascribed towards getting to this notion of what in the book referred to as middle-classness. Um, and I think what had happened with Bozizi is a fruit vendor. He had sort of gone through his daily routine of selling fruits on the street. And numerous times um, over the course of the past year, this would be 2010, he had been molested um, by the intelligence police in Tunisia. And the intelligence police at that during Ben, uh, ben Ali's um, reign in 2010, that time it numbered 700,000 citizens. Um, the, and basically what the intelligence police did is that they collected information on citizens. Um, and so he'd been hassled by the intelligence police. He'd been hassled by the regular police. And, you know, he was just, you know what, I'm just trying to make a living. You know, I'm, I'm already having trouble providing for my family. And ultimately what had got what had happened is that I think on that morning, you know, it was the it just an ordinary morning for him. And uh, a female police officer assaulted him um, twice Um, um as she was standing in front of his car telling him, you know, you don't have the necessary permits, etc. You need to move on. You can stand here, etc. And I think it was so it was so trying because 
already during that week, he had experienced several sort of assaults, verbal assaults and abuse from the police at that point in time, that this was really the last. And he was like, you know what, I'm sort of tired of, of the graft and the corruption um, that was going on. And, and you know, his self-emulation was to say, you know, you've, you've taken everything from me. Why don't you just take the last thing? And and basically, what he did is that he went to the um, to the resident general's house and um, and in front of the police station, he sort of uh, threw gasoline on himself and set himself on fire in protest of what he saw as the inhumane treatment of ordinary Tunisians trying to make a living. And that's because what they had felt, and many Tunisians still feel this, is that, you know, the system had become so corrupted, it became corrupt to the extent that you start, you were able to pay for seats in education in the best schools. So everybody wanted to achieve middle-classness, and education was the only way to become part of the middle-class elite. And in order for you to do that, you had to bribe some official to get there. Um, and so the, the, the interesting cover to the Bozizi story is that, you know, after he died, um, his family just before Ben Ali fled um, in January 2011, the family sort of paid off Bozizi's family. And one of the first things that they did is that they moved to one of the most wealthiest suburbs in Tunisia, the suburbs of La Marsa, and they bought this palatial villa and they lived in there. So they reached middle classness because of Bozizi's self-emulation they did uh they honestly did and for them that was sort that was that was sort of it and and tunisians don't look at them and sort of despise them etc you know they they feel that you know it was it was paid for what it is and but unlike the others who had self-emulated themselves before bozizi they didn't get that opportunity because oftentimes those things were were sort of suppressed and 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 the, the passion that Bozizi did, and this is also where education became linked to the uprising, is that many argue that one of the reasons that the uprising was sort of allowed to move is because the first people who were responding to Bozizi's self-emulation were a group of members from the local teachers' union. And it's those teachers who ultimately started taking pictures and they're the ones who started getting the words out on social media, etc. So one can argue that the teachers had not been there, um, then we perhaps might have not have had this, the start of the, the revolution that, that took the Middle East by storm. Why, why were the teachers there? Why was the teacher union so involved in the demonstration that happened after Bozizi set himself on fire? They were there by coincidence. It, it happened just across the self-emulation happened just outside the local um, teachers trade union. Um, and so they, it was just by happenstance that they happened to be there. And they sort of to, took it up because at that point in time, what had ultimately had happened, um, and this is very similar to the, the, the Gucci, Grace and Mugabe story, um, is that ultimately what had happened by that point in time is that Ben Ali's second wife, Lila Trebelsi, and her brothers had, they had sort of raped the country of everything possible. Many Tunisians say we were fine with Ben Ali's corruption, but we couldn't stand the corruption of his wife. And ultimately what many people started understanding is that the more that they were taking, it was just going into the hands of a selected four or five people. And so I think by that point in time, teachers became so frustrated here, and I'm speculating, that they were like, you know what, here's another innocent, undereducated soul trying to prove a point. Because for them, you know, proving a point is not a drastic extreme as 
self-immolation, but something through protest or something like that. And here they were, well, you know, we can't do anything. And as I said before, you know, what ultimately made this difference is that even when the teachers rose up um, with the teachers union um, and then linked to the other big labor unions across the country, the coastal elites who would often sort of not sanction those things or would, would block their way towards marching into Tunis, they didn't do anything. Social media played such an important role that, that, that as the wave of protests and demonstrations started hitting the wealthy towns of uh, Saks, Sous, um, Monastir, Hammamet, etc., they just sort of let it just, they just let them pass. Um, and so, and I think for, for us, after sort of reading that narrative, um, which was one not very well explained um, within the Western media, that's partly why we got interested in sort of understanding the role that education has played in the revolution. And as we started doing the research, we also found that, that Tunisia is unique, and hence we, we talked to this idea of Tunisian exceptionalism, that Tunisia is unique over the course of its 3,000 years of history. Ultimately, what it has done is that during, you know, conquests, um, looting, plunder, you know, dictator, what they ultimately do is that every so often they agree upon a sort of things that a dictator can get away with um, in the form of this social contract. And when they are um, when they don't like what the dictator is doing, they sort of rebel against that dictator. Um, and the way in which they, they rebel is that often its education is used for a tool of rebellion against a dictator. Um, it's, exactly, it's exactly the way in which the educated elites um, rebelled against the French. Um, it's the way in which uh, Ben Ali rebelled against sort of Bourguibin, the silent coup, and, and so forth. It's, it's this continuous history of rebellion. So this cycle of rebellion... Uh, obviously, there's a history to it, as you're saying. So what, in this cycle, in 2010, 2011, what were the protesters, the, the, those who were demonstrating against Ben Ali, what were they actually asking for? Like, what, what did they want? What was the social, or why was the social contract, in a sense, broken with Ben Ali? And what were they proposing as the sort of solution to it? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. At the end of the day, as I mentioned earlier, the protesters, Tunisians were fine with some level of graft and corruption. They had just argued that the corruption had sort of gotten too out of hand. And, and the basic reasoning for that is that basically what had happened is that things continued to be subsidized, such as, you know, bread, oil, flour, and so forth. But the cost of living was increasing, but more importantly, what Ben Ali had managed to do in taking power in 1987, he had sort of enacted this band-aid solution where he had think, tinkered with the educational system. And in tinkering with the educational system, what he then did is that initially before he did that tinkering, when students wrote their baccalaureate exam, which is the end of secondary school exam, that ultimately sent them into university, as a way to appease uh, the populace at that point in time and to get elected, he did it in such a way as where he said, okay, 25% of the baccalaureate grade can count towards existing coursework and the exam only counts towards 75%. When he did that, what he didn't realize intentionally that he was doing is that he was moving hundreds of thousands of students who would not have been um, gotten great 
grades of the baccalaureate into the higher education system. As he moved them into higher education, what that also then meant is that the higher education system ultimately became overburdened. And then he went on this expansion and building boom of universities. So today, Tunisia has 13 public universities, uh, which are considered the best universities because they're government subsidized all the way. It's free to Tunisians um, all the way. And then what he then insisted on doing is that once students were at university, he sort of insisted that they stayed at university and studying as a way to sort of allowing them not to enter the job market because there weren't enough jobs there. So then you had the student went from a bachelor's to a master's to their first PhD to their second PhD. And so students would have been studying. And so you you have all these elite students. And, and later on, I'm happy to talk about the link to education and the Islamic State because, because there's a relevance and interesting correlation we found there. So, But then what you had is that you had all these students who were sort of remaining in Tunisia's educational system, and they were simply buying time. We argue, as Ben Ali was hoping that its its new his new wave of modernization reforms would sort of come on stream and then ultimately create employment. What happened is that everything that he tried to invest in terms of um, diversifying the economy and rejigging the economy to allow for more Tunisians to have access um, to a better technological um, economy a technologically driven economy, those reforms never sort of materialized the type of jobs that they would, would, would ultimately happen. And that was it, is that at that point in time, by 2010, you had too many over-educated uh, Tunisians who had, by all indicators defined in the social contract, had amassed middle-classness, but they were unemployed. Um, and then you had another group who were employed, but underemployed. And then you had a third group who were employed but feel as though that they were paying too much for corruption. I think those three factors ultimately coalesced into this um, leaderless revolution that brought everybody from the the poor to the to judges to lawyers um, to, to doctors onto the street. And so it was this massive wave of change. And, and, and ultimately what had happened is that unlike the 2008 Gafsa uprising, um, nobody was there to suppress it. Um, whereas in the past, suppression had been a very good tool. And, and this is also the role that social media ultimately played, because in 2000, when Ben Ali sort of went on this campaign to, to have Tunisians become the forefront of technological innovation, one of the things that, that, that his regime did, which was, I think, to the best of my knowledge, one of the only regimes in the world that did it, is that he went on this idea of, of ensuring that every Tunisia had a computer, every Tunisian had a computer in their house. And he provided um, government grants so that every, Tunisians can, every Tunisian can sort of have that computer in there. And so we, one of the things we argue is that this move towards technological innovation at 2000 ultimately would sort of create tools across social media that would, unlike Libya, um, not allow the regime to suppress. And so what had happened by 2010 is that the regime had done, the Ben Ali regime was doing a very good job at suppressing all other forms of communication, so radio, television, but they had not figured out how to suppress the internet yet. And so many factors sort of coalesced, but again, it was only the educated middle class that also understand and knew how to use the internet to their advantage. So it sounds, I mean, so Ben Ali sounds like he created the conditions under which 
or that eventually overthrew him, that created the conditions for his own downfall, his own demise. So it's been seven years since um, Ben Ali was overthrown peacefully in Tunisia. What has happened? Has there been a new social contract that has been created that has, you know, given this overeducated population uh, more jobs? Like, you know, what, what has happened in these seven years? Absolutely nothing has happened in the past seven years. Um, Tunisia's educational system has gone through, um, and for the use of a better word, you know, we, we refer to it as a, as a beyond a gradualist, um, a gradualist education reform. And so immediately after the uprising, there are all these little tinkerings to the system that occurred. You know, one of the the first ones that happened is that um, university um, deans and rectors were no longer appointed. Uh, They they were voted among them between themselves per se. Um, So that's that's sort of what what happened. But then sort of beyond that, it wasn't it wasn't until 2000 and late 2016, oh no, late 2016, parts of 2017 that the big reform started entering the arena, but these entered the arena in the sense of social dialogues. The justification for incremental reforms had much more to do with the idea uh, that um, we need to fix the Tunisian constitution first. And we need to ensure that we have all our freedoms and our rights first, and then we can sort of get to education. So it's interesting because education was ultimately the the triggering mechanism for the uprising, but it was then the la- it's literally the last thing to to have any sort of tinkering with, and everybody sorts of agree wholeheartedly that Tunisia's education system is broken to the extent that they labor market requirements that companies require are not being taught across its school system, and that is at the primary, secondary, and tertiary level. So companies are complaining that the people who they are employing don't have the necessary skills, whether you call them 21st century skills um, or you call them skills for the knowledge-based economy. They don't have these basic skills needed to work in their industries, and so they refuse to hire them. So there's a complete disparity between what is being taught in school and what companies need. Um, But now, for the past seven years, much of the conversation has still been on on different forms of reform, but nothing to do with education. Because again, everybody just thinks that the education system is good, but when you talk to people in the system and you talk to the amount of students who are still underemployed and unemployed, they're like, we can't find jobs. So, so there's a huge mismatch between uh, skills needed and what is taught. So maybe it wasn't Ben Ali's fault at all, right? I mean, it could just be an issue of global capitalism. What, what skills are needed where and when? That is true because in the immediate post-revolutionary period, Tunisians went complete to the opposite side. The the pendulum, when they um, sort of adopted a very Islamist party and you thought that Tunisia would sort of move away from the democracy and move towards a a much more um, newer version of um, Islam fundamentalism. That didn't happen because the the party sort of um, was kicked out of power, again, through to to unrest and and protest. So, you know, that social contract was was broken very quickly. 
And then later on, Tunisians opted to put into power a president who was part of the old Ben Ali regime. Many argue and speculate um, that, you know, what ultimately has happened, and you you hearing this, I'm, I'm hearing this in my interviews, and I'm hearing young people say this as, you know, as we go back, is that, you know, things were better on the Ben Ali if only he didn't marry again. So they blame the wife for everything that has gone wrong, and they sort of, and so now many people sort of miss the benevolent dictator because what they're saying is that you know pr- at least prices didn't increase and at least this didn't happen and that didn't happen, but you know we were sort of better off and 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 it's interesting the things that they then start equating to how good things were on the Ben Ali. One of the, the most important things is is the environment. You know, on the Ben Ali, the streets were akin to those in Singapore. You know, they they were spotless. Now, when you see the proliferation of garbage, and you also see other mental and social health issues that were often hidden on the Ben Ali that are sort of coming to front, the front. You know, you're seeing children begging on the street. You're seeing old people begging on the street, and so forth. So you see all these things that that the West has having to been having to deal with that Ben Ali had done a really good job at hiding. As these things start appearing in society, many people are starting to long for the the the, the twenty plus years of Ben Ali's dictatorship and saying, at least things were better. One of the um, fascinating things that has happened in that part of the world, starting in 2014, if I'm not mistaken, is the rise of the Islamic State. Um, what impact has the Islamic State had on Tunisia? That is an excellent question. Up until when we were writing this book and up until last year's when the numbers were revised that showed that Ukraine had the most foreign fighters in Islamic State, um, Tunisians dominated the leadership in Islamic State as well as the fighters. So we argue that Tunisians play a special role in Islamic State because of numerous factors. One, Tunisians are um, a Sunni population and Islamic State is sort of based on this idea of promulgating a Sunni form of Islam. Uh, two, you had an, a significant amount of over-educated Tunisians that Islamic State were able to recruit and entice with a very set of distinctive rewards. Um, and many of the Tunisians recruited to the higher echelons of power within Islamic State um, had a PhD degree or at least had a master's or higher. Many of them went into the communication sec- sector of, of the Islamic State. And because they were so highly educated, the Tunisians, they were not the foot soldiers of Islamic State. They took up leadership at the top echelons, as I mentioned before. And in taking up leadership, what Islamic State was able to do is that they, they put together the most amazing recruitment package we offer, is that here you have somebody who can who would go from making next to nothing um, as a salary with a PhD, roughly about, you know, 800 dinars, which translates to about maybe $350 a month, going to Islamic State and sort of making a, a minimum of 4,000 US dollars, 5,000 US dollars per month. In addition to making a stat salary, they get a sign-in bonus. Um, they're provided with free house um, the Tunisian men were provided with sex slaves um, and they were provided with comfortable work environment. And more importantly, the children got free access to the best schools that Islamic State had to offer. How can anybody sort of beat that? You go from making $350 a month to four, five, six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars a month. And every and you don't have to pay for anything at all. And all you're sort of doing is working. And so many Tunisians, we argue, sort of use that um, 
as a way to join Islamic State. And for Tunisians joining Islamic State, it wasn't about an ideological backing. It was very much more one based on financial means and the idea to sort of get out of their existing situation, put their degrees to to, to use. Um, and so we make the argument that ultimately Tunisia turned into a hotbed of um um, jihadist recruitment for Islamic State. And so again, it had much to do with the foundation of the Sunni recruiting Sunni and the idea that you had um, an, a, a labor market and labor mobility that was sort of welcome. And so across Tunis, you had, in the, especially in the remote tongues, you had overnight, um, the example of Bizarre comes to mind, overnight you had a hundred men dis- um, deserted from the coastal city of Bizarre. They all just sort of pick up overnight and they all just went to Islamic State. You know, it's called the Night of the Missing Men. It's, I mean, it sounds like uh, the Islamic State basically fulfilled the economic need that many Tunisians, Tunisian youth particularly, were seeking and were trying to um, get after or during the, the Tunisian revolution in, starting in 2010. So it's like they, they filled that, that gap that had existed since 2010. Indeed, that, that is correct, they did. And so the gap that Ben Ali left, the Islamic State, just sort of swoop in and, and filled that. And even before you had the men going to Islamic State, um, immediately after um, the uprising in 2011, you also had a, a, a lot of Tunisian women who sort of went to Syria and they, they were sent, they, they, you know, they, they, they went to Syria and for them, their sort of jihad was the acceptability of giving their body and being a sex slave. Um, and so you, you have, and, and these are not things that are often sort of reported in the West, because when we sort of think of what it means to be jihad, we often think of it as this sense of an ideological um, phenomena, and it's based on, you know, the, the undereducated sort of taking up arms. And, and that was very much Al-Qaeda's or original recruitment strategy with Islamic State that recruitment strategy has ultimately changed and so you know what we can recruit the best and the brightest in the field we can pay them and you know they can do the sort of work that we can that we can do so I would argue that you know Tunisia has ultimately changed the way we think about um, um, jihad fundamentalism and sort of the way it is now playing out in in the world stage what's interesting to me is that you're history of Tunisia shows how there's been these different social contracts that get created under different strongmen, kings, dictators, autocrats, whatever it is over over the course of history. But today, uh, since 2014, for instance, uh, it, it seems as if the social contract is being constructed with the Islamic State. It, in a sense, the Islamic State has become the new strongman in Tunisia. It is. And I would also say, you know, you asked me a question earlier and I can sort of now reflect and you sort of asked me, who is the new social contract with? Right now, I would appear to argue that the new social contract the Tunisians are sort of constructing is not with dictator per se, but it's one based on religion. And so now there's a huge fight between religiosity and secularism, but not religiosity and secularism in the way we think about it, because now what has happened is that religiosity has sort of now come to play a different and defining role in what it means to be religious in Tunisia, um, or what it means to be Islamic in Tunisia is not the same as the rest of the world. And so Tunisia now straddles this interesting line where it sort of needs to keep its secular ways um, that are part and parcel of the post-colonial project and its French history. And it also is now embracing 
Islam fundamentalism. And so you have sectors of the society that are sort of moving in a different direction and others that aren't moving in that direction. The quick example is, you know, on the Ben Ali, the burqa and the niqab and the headscarf were ultimately banned. Uh, they were seen as symbols of repression. Um, yet Tunisia has the oldest constitution in the Arab world. Immediately after 2011 and up until now, we see the proliferation of headscarves. But a headscarf simply means that it's a woman trying to find herself a husband. Whereas a woman wearing a headscarf looks down upon a woman wearing a burqa or a niqab as too overly repressive. But at the same time, on the other hand, immediately since 2011, we've seen a huge proliferation. Last count, it was over a thousand new Quranic schools that have emerged as a way towards teaching um, Tunisian boys and girls, um, you know, rote uh, recitation, rote, recite, rote recitation of the Quran. And these are not in the um, in the um, interland areas, but they're in the urban areas. So now I think what has happened is that Tunisians, as they try to find themselves, the, the social bargaining is sort of all up in the air because they're not sure what it is that they want to do. And therefore, education now has sort of been left aside and they're trying to say, let's fix all the other problems. And our argument is, is but the central problem is education because you need to fix the educational system because what has ultimately happened, we now have approximately at last count this year, we now have 70 private universities that have now sort of pop up around Tunisia. We have all these um, international schools that are sort of coming into the landscape. And so what it means in terms of the blending of religiosity and secularism is also changing with the arrival of new universities, these private universities. The Educated demographics is changing. It's moving again from a society that is based on um, homogeny to one that is now has to be based on open because you have lots of African students who are now coming to Tunisia to study. And those two are causing new and different cultural dynamics and cultural ripples across the fabric of Tunisian society that they have never sort of experienced yet. And so uh, my bet would be is that there are lots of numerous social contracts that are fighting for attention at the same time and we sort of sitting back waiting to see ultimately um, who will come out on top at the end of the day. Well, Tavis Jules, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed again. It's always a pleasure to talk and uh, you're always welcome on the show for your next book. It was a pleasure being on the show again. Thanks, Will. Tavis Jules is an associate professor at Loyola University, Chicago. His new book, Educational Transitions in Post-Revolutionary Spaces, co-authored by Teresa Barton, was published by Bloomsbury earlier this year. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brim, and I'll be back next week.